This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. After stellar GDP growth of 8.7% in 2022, Malaysia is expected to expand at a more moderate pace. Now, according to the World Bank, which is forecasting 3.9% for this year, and then for then 4.3% in 2024, with risk tilted to the downside. Meanwhile, has enough attention been paid to the structural issues of inequality, employment disruptions and fiscal reform? Questions we pose to Apuva Sanki, World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. Thank you so much for joining us again, Apuva. Now, I want to premise that many of my questions today were based on the recent Malaysia Economic Monitor report. This year, the title is Raising the Tide, Lifting All Boats. It's 108 pages, but an excellent one. So kudos to the team at the World Bank. So I want to start with your views of Budget 2024 that was just tabled on 13 October were you impressed? Was it an A+, plus, B+, plus, or even just a C+, plus in your book? Now, I want you to be that tough Asian parent, please. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Shaolin. It's a pleasure to be, uh, to be back on BFM uh, again. And happy Monday, Monday morning to your, to your uh, listeners. For me, Monday morning is uh, when my coffee needs a coffee. <laughs> so I hope your viewers, <laughs> your, your, your listeners are more, more alert than I am. Um, listen, First of all, uh, and again, thank you for reading the report. 108 pages. I I know you're uh, you're being complimentary, but it's a lot. Next time we'll try to do uh, <laughs> uh, to more with less. So anyway, on the budget, you know, it's worth remembering that a budget is an annual exercise mm. that supports existing policy directions that have already been put forward. So it is not the place to announce new big grand policies. So if you look at the policy directions that have been put forward by the government. Under the Madani framework, what were they? So they are the uh, the midterm review, the NIMP, the investment, uh, the industrial master plan, the NETR, etc. So put together, they pointed towards a pro-growth, pro-green, uh, pro-poor budget, which in some ways, uh, what this budget is. Now, lots of analysts have spoken about the budget, but let me just point out three underappreciated areas or aspects of the budget. Um, one is the increase in ecological fiscal transfers and the biodiversity circles. You know, Shaoning, in this region, it's Malaysia and Indonesia that are the two countries that have forests. So how, for example, Malaysia manages its forests uh, would be important, not just for Malaysia, but for the region and for the world. So that is one underappreciated aspect of the budget, I think. The second is incentivizing health prevention rather than exposed treatment. And I think that deserves a, a special mention. And the third is uh, measures to encourage more women in the in the labor force. As we know, female labor force participation in Malaysia is quite low. So, um, so, so that's good. So these are sort of three underappreciated areas. Mm. Now, before I start sounding like a government spokesperson and you ask me to be the tough Asian yeah, parent, yeah, I want you to be that you know okay. critical parent, yes. please. So there is one aspect of the budget that I think could have performed better, which is on increasing fiscal space. Now, to put this in context, Malaysia has regressed from a medium revenue, medium spending equilibrium some uh, 12, 13 years back to a low revenue, low spending one. So over the last dozen years or so, both revenue and spending, uh, OE spending in particular, have declined by 30%. This is one of the sharpest declines we see globally. So the question is, does the budget increase fiscal space? Mm. The short answer is not really. And let me just elaborate on two aspects. So if you look at revenues, 
The main revenue enhancing measure announced was increasing the SST from 6 to 8 percent. Yes. Now, MOF estimates that will bring in another 3 billion ringgit. Now, that sounds like a lot. 3 billion ringgit sounds like a lot, and, and it is in absolute terms. But in terms of GDP uh, terms, it's just 0.15 percent. And in of terms GDP. of expenditure, it's small. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and Deloitte, for example, reckons that the new SST to bring in less than 1 billion mm. ringgit. So, MOF estimates 3 billion, Deloitte estimates less than a billion revenue, and that is a 0.05% of GDP. So either way, the impact is in decimal points of uh, in terms of revenue mobilization. Now, looking at on the spending side, the budget does make some moves to curb spending, especially on diesel and electricity subsidies. But these subsidies are about 0.91% of GDP. And of course, uh, it, it's important to tackle these. But in contrast to the elephant in the room, which are raw 95 subsidies uh, that comprise an eye-watering 1.3% of GDP last year, the budget has remained silent. But maybe uh, this is just setting up the stage for, for further fuel subsidy rationalization. So all in all, while the budget sets the right tone and direction, I'm less sanguine about the sum total impact of revenue raising and spending uh, cut measures and generating the fiscal space that Malaysia really needs, and it needs it quite badly. So it sounds like we perhaps could have been a little bit bolder, uh, at least give us, well, the government should have given us some signposts in terms of implementation, but they always use the excuse, or at least they say, this will all happen when the central database hub of Badu comes online. And that's really, you know, they say it's going to happen end of this year, and then we'll have fuel subsidies come quarter three, quarter four, can can we afford to wait? That's one question. But the other question I have is, how do we then ensure that the right households receive these subsidies post-Badu? Because the current challenge is our system seems very highly fragmented. And is cash the best form of assistance we can then provide? Okay, so that's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> so let me, <laughs> let me uh, take them one by one. So I, I think... The, the Padu database is absolutely the right step uh, to, to undertake because you want that, that needs to be the starting point. One yeah. consolidated database where you have all the information about um, all the recipients of potential uh, assistance. Right? So yeah, right because now, you say that, that we can't go ahead with subsidy rationalization till that's in place. Is yes. that true? So, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, in some ways, if you look at it, so the decent electricity subsidy rationalization mm. is already happening. Um, so the Padu, the centralized Padu database would, would actually spur that momentum, if you will. Um, so so it, is, it, is, uh, it is definitely required. And in terms of the timing, which is your first question, you know, subsidy rationalization arguably could have been done, done yesterday. But of course, there are political economy aspects that I can touch upon if you wish. Um, just remind me, what were your other questions? Because there's a lot, lot, in, a lot in that. Is cash the right uh, way, the best form of assistance? And how do we know which... Like, how do we ensure that the right households actually receive these subsidies? Right. So, so in terms of ensuring that the right households receive the subsidies, uh, that the Padu database or a centralized database should is, should, uh, has to be the, the starting point, right? Mm. In terms of cash transfers, so it's interesting the debate in Malaysia on cash transfers. Um, now, our experience worldwide shows that cash transfers are the most practical and the least operational sort of oversight way of, uh, of, of transferring assistance to those who need it, of giving assistance to those who need it, right? And targeted cash transfers, uh, if you look at the effect on health uh, and educational outcomes and say Brazil, Malaysia, Kenya, they all, you know, they all, all check out. Mm. 
but one experience from our one one experience is that uh, one lesson of experience uh, is that they need to be small, frequent, and reliable. Okay. So, so these are some of the aspects on on cash transfers that uh, that we have learned from our global experience. Now, I know that uh, there's this perception out there that oh, if you give people cash transfers, they would blow it up and on yeah, cigarettes and alcohol or spend or on the wrong things and then become lazy. You hear these comments, right? You you hear these comments, and I think you have to look at the evidence, and the overwhelming evidence by the World Bank, by the UN, and others show that sure there might be some cases where that does happen, but the overwhelming evidence is that people use it, mm. uh, recipients use it to enhance, to further, uh, or to improve health and education outcomes and and things that they truly uh, you know they truly want to to further. Mm. So sure there are some aspects, but you know that is not what the overwhelming evidence says. Okay, so you have to look at the evidence. That's my point. Rather than hearsay, right, or your own conjecture. But I do want to point out a worrying trend from the report in that our wage gap seems to have been increasing over the last decade, right? Like what you highlighted at the very beginning of our conversation. Half of our workers earn less than 2,000 ringgit per month, albeit this is 2021 data. And that's just a little bit more, 600 ringgit more than the current minimum wage of 1,500 per month. Now, our annual real wage growth is low compared to our neighbours. And it appears to be a lot of it driven by high-skill underemployment. So what are the reasons for this? So if you look at the latest uh, wage data, mm. you... So first of all, the good news. So we see that there's been a quite a bit of wage growth, both at the lower and at the higher ends of the wage distribution. Okay, so so but the, it's the middle. But it's the middle that's getting squeezed. So if you look at the over the, I'm talking the last ten, twelve years. If you look at real wage growth, uh, that has also outpaced productivity growth since 2010 in almost every sector. So so that's the good news. But wage growth for those in the middle mm. uh, of the wage distribution has been limited. And especially among semi-skilled workers, uh, those aged between 25 to, to 35. And these semi-skilled workers, Shaoning, comprise around 60% of total employment. So it's the middle part that is getting squeezed. And this goes back to the skills uh, issue that you, that you touched upon. So if you look at skills, there is some malicious suffers from a chronic, uh, well, Malaysia is in an unenviable position of uh, of exporting high skills and importing uh, low skills, but even for the skills that are currently in place in the in the country, those are those are being underutilized. Mm. So what do I mean by that? If you look at the skills based uh, underemployment, that is quite high in Malaysia and has been has been growing. And then you know we asked in, in in the in a Malaysia Economic Monitor we we uh, we, we discuss this and we. You know, we ask employees, you know, what, what's going on? So yeah, why, what are the reasons? Yeah, what are the reasons? And the main reasons are basically that uh, Malaysian graduates are not graduating with the skills that employers want, in particular soft skills mm. and digital skills. So that's the that's the main, main reason. Apova is a solution proposed by our economy minister and part of this Madani economy economy framework, uh, which is progressive wage model, something that we should consider simultaneously, other than addressing the education needs of you know future employment. So, so Shaning, the way I look at it is that the challenges that Malaysia uh, faces are structural at the end of the day, um, and they require 
formulating and implementing policies at the level of economic reforms mm. rather than direct interventions in the economy. Uh, so if you look at and wage policies are a good example. So as I mentioned, if the problem is with uh, mismatch of skills, and Malaysia is not unique, by the way, other countries also suffer from... It's a global from, thing, yes, right? Yes, it's a global thing. Uh, but the solution there is to focus on addressing the underlying structural issues, so equipping graduates with proper education and skills, in particular soft skills, digital skills, so they're employable, and not be tempted to increase wages sort of solely by by diktat. Mm. Uh, right. So, and now having said that, we in, in our Malaysia Economic Monitor, we we share experiences of uh, progressive wage models or, or whatever they're called in different countries in Australia and Singapore. Uh, and and uh, if you're going to go down that road, uh, one of the lessons of experience, say, coming out of Australia is to make them small and predictable uh, so that the market is able to absorb them. But my, my broader point is that you need to address the source of the problem. And the source of the problem is the skills mismatch due to well, reasons we just discussed. Yeah, and if you were going to implement it, at least have policy clarity. On The Breakfast Grill today is Apuva Sanghi, World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. After the break, what will it take for the ringgit to appreciate BFM 89.9? You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. The hot seat this morning is Apuva Sanghi, World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. Before the break, subsidi- subsidy rationalisation and wage growth, both much, ne- both much needed, but do we have the will? Apuva, let's talk about FDI because it's critical, right? That's also one way in which we can improve wages. It's related to productivity growth. But your report tells us that Malaysia received the highest annual increase in net FDI related to its relative to its ASEAN peers in 2022. So a little pat on our back, but we still lag behind that of Vietnam and Indonesia. And our share of FDI in ASEAN is lagging. So how can we reverse this? So, yes, yeah, so the good news, Malaysia had a good year last year in 2022. And last year is the latest year for which we have data which you can compare across uh, across countries. And Malaysia ranked in the top 25 countries in the world and received a record 17 billion US dollars of FDI net inflows. So, you know, kudos kudos to, to Malaysia for, for pulling but that off. it's never enough, right? It is never enough, right? And, and interestingly, the top three contributors uh, to Malaysia's FDI inflows were the US, uh, Singapore and, and Japan. And collectively, they contributed 80% in 2022. And I say interestingly because we know that China is Malaysia's largest trading partner. Mm. Uh, but one interesting finding when it comes to FDI is that the US has become a much larger contributor to Malaysia's FDI, uh, FDI than China. In fact, FDI inflows from the US uh, were 11 times more than China's. So that's why I said interesting. And so you know, that, 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 that's good news. And the good news continues, actually. So I, right now I spoke about net invert FDI. Mm. But if you look at uh, outgoing FDI, which is a proxy of how well Malaysian companies are doing abroad, Malaysia also ranked in the top 25 countries uh, when it came to FDI outflows. In fact, uh, this is really worth highlighting. Malaysia bagged the largest deal abroad uh, in terms of uh, developing countries. And this was uh, Petrolia Nacional's acquisition of Sweden's purse drop for about, I believe, two and a half billion US dollars. So all in all, Malaysia's FDI is seeing a revival of sorts and in areas that matter, green, digital, agriculture, etc. 
but and there's always a but and always you, always a but uh, in the region in the east asia region five countries attracted more fdis than than malaysia so china singapore japan indonesia and vietnam and if we zoom out and look at the longer time time horizon the growth of fdi invest stock has actually slowed from its 2007 peak so all that i spoken earlier all the good news that was just for last year 2002 but if you look at the stock which is a cumulative sort of flows over over time well that has slowed down and now malaysia invest stock lags thailand indonesia and even vietnam so to give you a comparator just a decade ago malaysia stock was two times that of vietnam's but now vietnam is ahead of of yeah. malaysia right so now what can be done to attract more fdi well i think from what i've been reading at least in this year uh, in terms of the the, the announced fdis malaysia seems to be doing doing rather well but to cut a long story short i think the main thing investors are looking for and it goes back to our earlier discussion is solving the skills uh, problem mm. so it's really lack of talent and skills that is uh, the the structural factor that that inhibits or that is constraining even more and 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 better high quality fdi and and the way the government tries to compensate for this is really by giving out tax incentives uh, that's been the way uh, in, in the past at least now there is a uh, there is increased recognition that these tax incentives are costly Uh, etc but really is is solving the the talent shortage problem that that Malaysia has uh, that that will bring in more investment so all these new economic policies be it like the national energy transformation roadmap the new industrial master plan do they help in terms of attracting fdi or at the end of the day it's really just boiling down to our you know our lack of focus in terms of creating that that the right future malaysian that has that skill set right so so you know confidence is the is really important when it comes yes, to attracting it's fdi it's the magic which, x factor which it comes from policy stability uh, more policy stability than political stability and mm. let me make the make the difference there because politicians may come and go but as long as the policies are are stable then that's what investors care most about but let me segue and, and since you mentioned mentioned madani mm. um, a, a bit so the way i interpret the madani framework is that economic development must include social uh, cultural and other factors to make sure that the benefits of growth and development are shared by everyone don't leave out anybody don't leave out anybody right and and giving credit where credit is due if you look at the last budget the increase in social cash assistance in this budget is a concrete sort of manifestation of of madani principles and this is laudable because development after all is more than just raising average incomes um and as just one illustration we were chatting this before the program mm-hmm. shouting uh, if you look at stunting and malnutrition in malaysia that is inordinately high 22% of children uh, under 5 years suffer from stunting 14% of children under 5 years are underweight and unfortunately but not unsurprisingly uh, being underweight and stunted are most acute amongst the poor and disadvantaged for example uh, the bumi sarawakian children right so 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 the madani framework uh is 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 quite 
quite vocal about making sure that the benefits of, of growth and, uh, and development are, are shared by everyone, and, and that, that's laudable. But at the end of the day, Shaneng, the challenges are structural. So reducing dependence on commodities, boosting export competitiveness, expanding fiscal space. Now, if Malaysia did all this, that would attract more uh, more investment, more confidence. Mm. And even leaving investment is good for Malaysia to do it in any case, right? Because, uh, uh, again, development is not about just raising, raising average incomes. So it's really doubling down to formulate and implement policies at the level of economic reforms rather than uh, direct interventions. And implementation is very important too. Yeah, which has been one of our issues in Malaysia. But looking at things, right, yes, we need to spend much more in terms of um, education, healthcare. But our problem has always been that our revenue base is too low. We spend too much on subsidies. 60% goes just to operate OPEX. So how do we get out of this conundrum? Because, you know, it's the, the chicken and egg perennial question. Let's say when we talk about fuel subsidies. We've talked about it briefly. How can we be brave to implement what is what clearly needs to be done? You know, are there lessons to be learned in terms of when we do want to do it next year perhaps? Yeah, so so the lessons have been there for for a for, for a while, right? I we mean, just ignore them. <laughs> we don't I, want to look at them because I, the politics sure of, is the problem. I, I'm not sure of that. So in, in, in uh, our interactions with our counterparts, uh, they are open. In fact, we get requests from our counterparts to share lessons uh, mm. on how other countries have done it. And I think that's that's a good starting point. And more importantly, learning from the mistakes that other countries have, have made. And, you know, we can talk about subsidy rationalization, the fiscal space it would create, so on and so forth. But perhaps just to emphasize that subsidy reform, uh, Raw 95 reform, is not just about relaxing the fiscal constraints, as, as important as, as that is. It's also about reshaping the social contract. Uh, and in the case of Malaysia, the subsidies have been so pervasive that uh, it is really you know, going to reshape the social contract. And there, if you apply the Madani sort of framework or Madani principles, I would argue that Listen, subsidy reform should benefit the poor because that's what subsidies are are for to, yes. in this particular case. There are many other reasons why subsidies happen, but in this particular case, it's to, it's to, it's to help, help the poor. The rich can sort of manage without it, right? But again, it's a middle class that will get squeezed from uh, the removal of, of, of uh, fuel subsidies. Mm. But here's, here's a question. Do we really know how the middle class would like to see the subsidy savings spent. And I'm not sure we do. And even we in the World Bank sort of have been uh, mea culpa in some ways. You know, we say, okay, you have all these uh, fuel subsidies. If you rationalize them, mm. then that would uh, reduce poverty by X percent. In fact, that's what part two of our report does, which, which is yes. fine. But if you remember the, I don't like using the, the word, but the losers are really the, the, the middle class. Yeah. Right? And we don't know what the middle class wants. For example, is it for the global good? Do they want to use savings to spur the green transition through EV charging infrastructure? Is it for the national good? For example, paying down debts uh, or to reduce poverty? Or is it for the local good? For example, better public mm. transportation or better health education? So the point is, and I'll stop here, point is that getting the middle class on board is the key for reform buy-in. Okay, we've got 20 seconds left, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What would drive the ringgit's appreciation? You've given us all the reasons for it, why it's down. But what what can we do to actually improve the current ringgit versus US dollar cross? So double down on, on reform. 
that will inspire confidence, increase the uh, the the demand for ringgits through trade and FDI. Uh, that is that is basically it. You know, in, in the long run, that's what matters. You, uh, the interest rate differentials matter, but it's really about what you do domestically. So stay the course, no to matter what. stay the what. course, yeah. On that note, thank you for your time today on The Breakfast Grill. was Apuva Sanghi, World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. I'm Wong Xiaoning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.